An old mentor of mine used to say that the Bible begins with a wedding in a garden and it ends with a wedding in a garden. That's because our origin reveals something of our destiny. Genesis is our origin story. The word itself means beginning. And it's worth saying that Genesis is not a scientific account of where we come from, it's a theological one. It tells us who we are and why. This is how the ancients approached cosmology, the study of the universe. Theirs was a completely theological way of explaining the world's history, which is not to pit science against theology, but to understand that the two disciplines are asking different questions. Old Testament scholar Douglas Green said, modern cosmology is brilliant for getting you to Mars, but it won't get you to heaven. On the other hand, ancient cosmology does exactly that. In describing God's creation of the heavens and the earth, Genesis addresses the relationship between God's realm and our realm, between heaven and earth. It answers the question, how do God and humanity get together? And in addressing these questions, Genesis gives us a hint of where the whole Bible is headed, what the story of redemption is really all about. We could summarize it like this. In the beginning, God created two places for himself to dwell, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, and then he brought them together. Now, there's a lot that happens in the middle of that story, right? And that's where we live. We're still waiting for the ending, but we get a foretaste of the whole thing right here in Genesis chapter two. So we're going to look at this little scene in light of that larger narrative. And of course, this larger narrative is the one to which we belong as well. This is our story. So I want to reflect on what this text reveals to us about our origin, our purpose, and our destiny. First, our origin. So you're probably already somewhat familiar with the lead up to this moment in Genesis 2 in which God has taken something formless and void, namely the earth, and made it into a fertile and fruitful habitation for plants and animals and people. Now he planted a garden at the middle of it and placed human beings there as its keepers, his emissaries in the earthly realm. We get most of this from Genesis chapter one, which has a slightly different chronology than chapter two, because again, this text isn't trying to be a literal or scientific history. This is apocalyptic history. It's telling us what happened in a way that reveals unseen realities, that peels back the metaphysical curtain, as it were, to tell us the meaning of things. And so, in Genesis 1, humankind is created in one fell swoop. God says, let us make man in our image. Let them have dominion over every creeping thing on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. The language might seem a bit confusing because man is referred to first in the singular and then immediately following in the plural. That's intentional because the Hebrew word for man used throughout the creation accounts is actually generic. It's closer to the English word for human than for a male person. In fact, the word for human, literally Adam, is a spin-off from the word Adama, which means ground or earth. So the Hebrew word for human is something kind of like earth creature. How flattering. But Adam is used both singular and plural in Genesis 1 to tell us that humanity is both a singular and a plural reality. 
there is only one kind of creature made in God's image, and that creature is male and female. We are a unity in diversity, a singular species that is within itself a community. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the God we worship who was mysteriously one but also three? We are made in the image of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a community within himself, and in some way our gendered existence reflects this. We're distinct in our maleness and femaleness, but also fundamentally the same, fundamentally one in our humanness. And in case we miss this point in Genesis 1, God zooms in on it in chapter 2, which starts out with only one Adam, one earth creature. In verse 7, we hear that God formed the human of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And God took the human and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then in verse 18, where our story picks up, God said, it is not good that the human should be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. We're going to unpack that verse more in a minute, so hang with me, but it's worth noting that God's statement here is his first critical assessment of his own creation. Up to this point, everything he has made, he calls good. Genesis 1 tells us, God made the earth and the dry land, and he saw that it was good. He made lights to govern the night and the day and saw that it was good. He made the sea and its creatures and every living thing that moves on the earth, and he saw that it was good. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good but it's not good for the human to be alone. And I don't think this is just about loneliness, you know, as if Adam was lonely so God made a friend for him to talk to. Companionship is part of what's going on here, but there's more, and it has to do with what we already know from Genesis 1. To fully image God, the human cannot exist as a monad. He must exist as a community. Pope John Paul II put it this way, man became the image of God not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons which man and woman form from the very beginning. The function of the image is that of mirroring the one who is the model or reproducing its own prototype. Man becomes an image of God not so much in the moment of solitude as in the moment of communion. He is, in fact, from the beginning, not only an image in which the solitude of one person who rules the world mirrors himself, but also and essentially in the image of an inscrutable divine communion of persons. It is not good for the human to be alone because humanity is a communion of persons, just like God is. Now, this doesn't mean that individual human beings fall short of fully imaging God. Each one of us is absolutely made in God's likeness. But this does mean that our existence as male and female, with all that that entails, is part of what it means for us to image a Trinitarian God. This is also beginning to help us understand what it means that the woman is created as a helper. Men need the partnership of women to fully image God in and to the world, and vice versa. Unfortunately, men and women don't always see each other that way, and that's putting it mildly. The battle between the sexes is as old as sin, literally. In the very next chapter, we see in Genesis the breakdown in the relationship between the man and the woman. And this breakdown, this fracture has followed us throughout human history. But that's why Genesis 2 is such a gift 
because it reminds us that from the beginning it was not so. Our origin is not division or competition or subordination. Our origin is unity, togetherness, joyful recognition and gratitude. Listen to how the human, the Adam, responds when he finally meets his counterpart in verse 23. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. At last, he says, my equal, my other half. Interestingly, this is the first time gender even enters the chapter. It's all been the generic Adam up to this point, the human. But here, when God presents the human counterpart, the woman, we get new words in the text. She shall be called Isha, woman, for she was taken out of man, Ish. Ish and Isha are the Hebrew words for man and woman, and they sound strikingly similar, don't they? The sound play mirrors the correspondence between them. It emphasizes what they have in common. In other words, Adam is saying, we are cut from the same cloth, made of the same stuff. To put this in philosophical terms, many scholars have said this whole description of the woman's creation out of Adam's rib or his side demonstrates that she is his ontological equal. And this is important because it's the foundation for the partnership of the man and the woman in their work. God placed the human in the garden, not just to sit around and eat bonbons, whatever those are, but to work and to keep it. That's verse 15. Humanity has a job to do. And this job, tending the garden, it's not just about landscaping. And let me say, landscaping is super important, don't get me wrong. I live at the bottom of a hill, and I am deeply grateful to the people who have helped us turn that mudslide of a yard into something more pleasant uh, and safe to live in. But in the ancient Near East, gardens were usually associated with temples, meaning they actually had a religious connotation. Gardens were sacred spaces where deities could dwell. So for God to place the human in his garden is to, and to maintain it is to make the human a priest, a cultivator and protector of sacred space. Remember, this story is about God's realm and our realm and how they're going to come together. And human beings have a role in that, of not only tending the garden, but expanding it, cultivating sacred space throughout all creation until the earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's how the prophet Habakkuk put it. So in Genesis 2, God makes this priestly role explicit by placing the human in the garden to work and to keep it. And he says, it is not good for the human to do this alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Now we see the second way in which the woman is a helper to man. She is given as a partner in humanity's priestly ministry to the world. And I know in English the word helper often connotes something more like assistant, a less skilled worker or less qualified person who works for somebody else. But in the Hebrew Bible, the word helper always connotes either an equal or a superior. For example, 15 of the 21 times we see the word helper in the Old Testament, it's describing God as the rescuer and strength of his people. Four times it describes a military protector or deliverer. The remaining two times, it describes woman. So helper is a strong word in Hebrew. 
It should never be used to imply inferiority on the part of woman. But it also should never be used to imply inferiority on the part of man, because it's qualified here in Genesis 2 with a prepositional phrase, corresponding to, or sometimes translated fit for. The Hebrew literally reads, Ezer Konegdo, which could be translated as a helper according to him, or a strength corresponding to him. This, of course, is then illustrated beautifully in the passage itself, right? When God makes the woman out of the man's own body and brings her to him. Old Testament scholar John Walton puts it like this. Because of the nature of the task of serving in sacred space, the only appropriate ally would be the one that is Adam's ontological equal. It is shown that the woman was not just another creature, but was like the man. In fact, his other half sharing his nature and was therefore suitable as his ally. She joined him as guardian and mediator with the task of preserving, protecting, and expanding sacred space. This is our purpose, to work together as priests to the world, cultivating and expanding the garden of God into every corner of creation. Now, as men and women, we will do this differently. We will bring different competencies and perspectives and experiences and bodies to this work. I feel that keenly at 38 weeks pregnant. But that's exactly the way God intended it. We are partners in the work. And as beautiful as that is, as precious as our shared nature and our priestly calling is, the story doesn't even end there. Our partnership as men and women doesn't culminate with business. The work is important, but the telos of our relationship is something deeper. It's communion. Verse 23, Adam says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The story starts with a job description, but it ends with a wedding. It ends with the two being put back together as one flesh. Now, not everybody experiences this particular union that we call marriage, nor does every meaningful partnership between men and women culminate in marriage. We need men and women working together in all sorts of ways, as friends and colleagues and brothers and sisters and fathers and daughters, strengthening each other in our common humanity, blessing the world as we bless each other. But I will say this, every person on this earth is the beneficiary of the one flesh union of a man and a woman. Think about that. Despite all of our technological advances, despite all our ways of assisting life and even trying to evade the necessity and meaning of gender in the development of life, every human being on the planet is the product of a man and a woman's bodily union. This is our origin. It's inescapable. And in a way, here's where I think Genesis is leading us, our origin is also our destiny. We come from communion and we are made for communion. The first union, the first marriage, is a temporary one. Human marriage, sexual intimacy, it's a sign, a temporal reality of great importance to God. Jesus makes that clear in our Mark reading. He says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage is important because it's a sign of an even greater union that is to come. Here's what I mean. Genesis 2 is quoted in one other place in the New Testament, and that's Ephesians 5. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the reality to which the sign points. The communion for which we were ultimately made is communion with God himself. So this little vignette in Genesis 2, it does tell us something about one human couple from history, sure. And it tells us something about men and women together generally, of course. But it also tells us something about the gospel. It tells us of the God who left his Father in heaven to hold fast to us, who gave his very body over to death so that we might be made one with him. Here's how St. Augustine put it. When Jesus slept on the cross, he bore a sign. Yea, he fulfilled what had been signified in Adam. For when Adam was asleep, a rib was drawn from him and Eve was created. So also while the Lord slept on the cross, his side was transfixed with a spear and the sacraments flowed forth whence the church was born. For the church, the Lord's bride was created from his side as Eve was created from the side of Adam. But as she was made from his side no otherwise than while sleeping, so the church was created from Christ's side no otherwise than while dying. In the marriage between Christ and the church, we are the bride. All of us, male and female, single and married, in whatever state of body or station of life you find yourself in. We are Eve, born again of Christ's own body. This mystery is profound, that by the blood of the cross and the water of baptism, Jesus looks at us and says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and this is my body given for you. As we wait for the culmination of this reality at his return, we are called to partner with him in his priestly ministry to the world, are we not? We are restored to take up humanity's original vocation of cultivating sacred space, expanding the garden of God, his beauty, even as we anticipate the renewal that he alone will bring when he comes. And when he comes, our communion with him will be complete. This is where the story is headed, remember? God's realm and our realm coming together. Redemption is not just about solving the problem of sin, folks. It's not just about getting the job done. It's about how God will come to dwell among us. It's about communion. The Bible begins with a wedding in a garden, and it ends with a wedding in a garden. The first wedding is between man and woman. The second wedding is between heaven and earth. Listen to how Revelation 21 puts it. This is the last book of the Bible, the end of the story. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, he is our origin, and he is our destiny. May we find great purpose and hope as we work together until he comes. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you that wherever we find ourselves in the story right now, whatever difficulties or tensions we're currently living in, we know how the story ends, that you are coming quickly to be with us and to make all things new. 
And I do pray that you would send your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to teach us how to work together um, in unity and in communion until you come. Amen.